0: for this day. Thank you for uh, a day of rest and gladness. Thank you for worship. Thank you for the means of grace that you appoint for your people. Uh, Thank you that you employ the means which you have appointed for our conversion, our preservation, uh, and even our perfection. You use word and sacrament in the context of the life of your church for all of these great ends for your people, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for this evening. We pray that you'd be with us as we spend this uh, bit of time together, that you'd encourage our hearts, and especially over these next 11 or 12 weeks as we Russell, with the book of Hebrews, Um, may the truths in it um, work their way by your Spirit into our hearts and accomplish great good there for your glory uh, and for our gladness. So bless this evening and bless each one who has come. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, welcome. Uh, we're we're going to look at uh, Paul's letter to the Hebrews, except it's not maybe Paul's letter to the Hebrews. That's a, that's a setup. Um, it certainly is uh, a letter, and it appears that it's a letter to the Hebrews, uh, and we'll talk about all of that. But exactly who wrote it, we don't really know. So what you're, um, what you're getting this evening is an outline for um, the next uh, two or three months or so. We will, we will go through uh, the 6th of April, which is Palm Sunday, and um, there, will be, there will be two weeks in which we will sort of be off. Uh, one is two weeks from tonight. We'll have a town hall meeting. I uh, certainly hope you'll plan to be with us for that and invite your friends to come as well. And then February 23rd is the Sunday evening of the Mission Conference, and we have a concluding session for the Mission Conference. Um, and I hope you all n- noticed the um, announcement regarding that in the bulletin this morning. It's going to be a, uh, uh, a really great time, and if I can just promote that very briefly. Sasan Tavasoli is, um, is um, a native Iranian. He was born and raised in Tehran. He, um, he was sent out of the country by his parents at the time of the transition from the Shah to the Khomeini regime, if you remember Ayatollah Khomeini, and everything that sort of uh, followed from that. He was sent to Portugal. He um, ended up in a school for um, the children of missionaries, um, and other folks, obviously, were able to attend it as well. He was sort of taken under the wing of um, one of the faculty members, and this faculty member led him to Christ. He uh, finished his high school work in this uh, missionary school, came to the United States uh, to Reform Bible College in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, then Uh, ended up in Orlando at Reformed Theological Seminary, where we became friends. He and his wife, Kenna, uh, worshipped with us for the three years uh, that they were in Orlando. From there, he um, went to Atlanta, where he was the pastor of a Persian-speaking church, an Iranian church, and then went um, eventually um, to England, where he completed a Ph.D. in Islamic studies and now his ministry is a ministry of uh, teaching in Farsi. You can go to his website, you can Google his name, and you can get to his website, but you won't understand a thing he says, because everything he does is in Farsi, and it's broadcast to wherever people who speak Farsi have access to the Internet and are interested in learning about Christianity. So he's a great guy, uh, very winsome um, very energetic. He'll just flat wear you out. Um, but I think it's going to be a great weekend, so I, I really do encourage you to, um, to, to mark that on your calendars and invite friends, um, bring folks to this thing. He has asked us that we not use normal media outlets to communicate this event to the, to the surrounding community, meaning radio and um, newspaper but we are inviting uh, particular churches, and you're certainly encouraged to invite friends to come to us. So it's February 21, 22, and then we conclude on Sunday evening, the 23rd. Uh, so there you go, missions conference, plan to be with us. Um, but beginning tonight, we're going to start this, uh, or, or we, we will, beginning tonight, look at this letter to the Hebrews. And... Um, what I'd like to do tonight is just provide us with a little bit of introduction um, to the letter. We, um, we have some books on order, and they will be here tomorrow. I actually ordered them before Christmas, believe it or not, or maybe it was right after Christmas, but holidays got in the way of whatever. Whatever. And they're just coming tomorrow. So we've ordered, I think, about 25 or 30 of these things. Let's Study Hebrews is a series that we've used quite a lot in this church. Uh, the Women's Bible Study is used John. They are using Second Peter and Jude now. It's, it's an excellent and very accessible uh, series of, uh, of studies to various books of the Bible. And we're going to use this um, uh, volume on Hebrews. And you can pick up a copy um, if you're here on Thursday, you could pick one up, or Sunday, or next Sunday evening. We, we should have enough for everybody to, to have one. Um, and uh, you'll see on the outline for uh, the next uh, next weeks and months um, how we're going to break this down. Tonight is an introduction and just a, just a kind of a glance off of the first few verses of chapter 1. And then next week we'll we'll really begin in earnest as we uh, study the letter. Um, as always, I'll try to leave a little time at the end for questions. Um, as always, I probably will fail in that, but we'll give it our best shot. so um, just uh, some some um, introductory comments, remarks uh, regarding this this letter um, I have never taught through Hebrews in a class, I've never preached through it, and, um, and yet Hebrews contains some of what to me are among the most precious passages uh, in all of Scripture. Um, I mean, here are just uh, a couple of my favorites, uh, Hebrews 2, if you have a Bible, you can You can kind of follow with me as I read some of these passages. Uh, Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 12, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And this is my favorite part of this passage. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. It's a passage that's um, really worth meditating on, that, that Jesus... The incarnate God, the King of glory, perfect in righteousness and holiness, is not ashamed to call me his brother. My children have embarrassed me in the past. I can tell you stories, times when I wish they had a different last name. What a stunning thing that Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother to identify me as a member of his family. It's just a sweet thing. And then chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, is uh, another just tremendously encouraging passage. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. And by the way, I'm sure I've been an embarrassment to my kids too, and they wish I had a different last name. So... And they're all glad they have different last names now. Well, two of them do, and the third one will have, May 3rd, in case you didn't know that. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wow, what a, what a great, great and encouraging passage. And then here's another one just a few verses later. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's, that's, a pretty, that's a passage worth thinking about. That Jesus, God incarnate, learned obedience. Life in the midst of this world was not a cakewalk for Jesus. Jesus had to walk through the temptations, the trials, the difficulties, the harsh realities of life in this sin-plagued and God-cursed world he learned obedience through the things that he suffered, and having been made perfect, he then becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I mean, what a great thing to know that your Savior has walked the path before you that he calls you to walk. He understands, he knows. I mean, it's just a it's a tremendously encouraging passage. So those are, those are some of my favorite passages, and there are others. Um, you probably have favorite passages from Hebrews. These, it seems to me, show us Jesus in his, in his true and real identity and in his real identification with us. So through the years in, in my Christian life, uh, Hebrews has been a, a, a place I've gone for encouragement and for reminders and for comfort, but I've never never taught through it, never preached through it. And frankly, I've been, um, in a sense, sort of intimidated by Hebrews. And the reason basically is I, I've struggled to understand how Hebrews works. Okay, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked, and some of you know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is, and if you know who he is, you know that he was an Remains one of uh, the great influences uh, in my poor life. Um, great um, preacher and uh, visionary, and a great respecter of the gospel and of the gospel preached. Um, Lloyd Jones was asked uh, why he hadn't, up to that point, preached through Romans, and he said he wouldn't until he had a clear understanding of Romans six and and then leading into Romans seven. So he clearly got to the place where he understood how Romans 6 and 7 fit into the whole fabric of of Paul's exposition of the gospel in Romans, and then he he preached from it. Well, I've felt something similar to that. And by the way, he he was in his 50s before he started preaching through Romans. I'm in my 60s before I've taught through Hebrews. So he's a little quicker on the uptake. Um, but again, it, it, Hebrews has always been sort of perplexing for for me, and uh, perplexing for for a number of reasons. And when you get hold of this little study guide, there'll be some great introductory material on the letter, uh, which will um, provide you with even more background than I'm than I'm suggesting now. But it's perplexing because it's a different kind of letter. It's different from the other letters in the New Testament. Um, you don't, we don't know who wrote it. It doesn't, it doesn't begin like the other New Testament letters, right? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the Romans. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the Philippians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the Thessalonians. Peter. Peter writing to the, the aliens, the sojourners, scattered through all of these regions of the Roman Empire, Cappadocia and Galatia, uh, and the rest. All of the other New Testament letters, the, the author is identified. The author is not identified here. And, and, and secondly, we don't know really clearly to whom it was written. Paul, to so-and-so. Paul, to so-and-so. Peter, to so-and-so. Um, So there's some obscurity about this letter, lots of uh, speculation in the history of the church regarding who might have written uh, Hebrews. Uh, It's been suggested largely in, in the early centuries of the church by the North African church, right? The gospel did get to Africa. Remember Philip's little experience with the Ethiopian eunuch and and he was—he had been up in Jerusalem, and he was headed back to Ethiopia. And Philip had this opportunity to talk with him about the gospel from Isaiah. And he was—he was reading Isaiah, and he couldn't understand it. And and he—he he was visited by Philip, and Philip helped him understand, and he was converted. And he headed back where to Ethiopia. Where is Ethiopia? North Africa. I mean, there is a history of Christianity in North Africa that goes all the way back to the first decade after the resurrection of Christ. And the North African church was of the opinion that Paul wrote this letter to the Hebrews. The the Western church, meaning meaning Asia and then into Greece and and then into Rome, uh, was of the opinion that either Luke or Barnabas or Apollos wrote this letter. And again, you get a quick summary of this in in, uh, the book, Let's Study Hebrews. For various reasons, each uh, has its own proponent. Uh, Timothy is mentioned later in the letter. Whoever it is who wrote this letter was a friend of Timothy. Timothy was known I think we can connect these dots pretty simply. Timothy was known by all four of these people. Paul, Barnabas, Luke, Apollos. He probably crossed paths um, with all of those folks. So all of these folks have their advocates, um, but uh, as early as the first part of the third century, Origen, if that's the name you know, uh, Origen said, only God knows who wrote this letter? We don't. And we don't, we don't really know who received it. Although the internal stuff, um, just the content of the letter, suggests, and if you, I'm sure looking around the room, you all have read through Hebrews, and you know this yourself, there's a very distinctively Jewish feel to this. Right? Aaron... Melchizedek, all these references to the temple and to, and to s- the sacrificial system, all of these things uh, suggest that the audience uh, was, was very likely um, those who had been drawn to Christianity from Judaism, probably including Gentiles who had been drawn first to Judaism, kind of like the Magi, right? Right? folks like that, who who learned of, heard of um, the promises, the Old Testament promises of a Redeemer, a Savior, a King of righteousness and peace, Uh, people who crossed paths with Jewish neighbors or ended up going to synagogue, going to church with a Jewish neighbor and learned of these things and, and were drawn to Judaism and then uh, were converted to Christianity, so uh, the audience is probably um, largely Jewish. Uh, quite likely that were there were Gentiles who were sort of in the mix. Um, and again, there's all kinds of internal stuff that that uh, suggests uh, that that was the audience that received this. So, at the top of um, at the top of your if you have a Bible, uh, top of your heading to this letter, it'll say something like Hebrews or to the Hebrews, something like that. And that's probably probably um, an accurate um, identifier of, uh, of the audience. Um, where it was written, we don't know who. We have a pretty good idea of those to whom it was written. But where it was written... Uh, we really don't know that either. Um, there's, there's an interesting, interesting little statement at the end of chapter 13, verse 24, where the writer uh, says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So you read the commentators and they they say, well, okay, was the writer in Italy writing back to some place where there had been some folks originally from Italy but who had come back? Or was the writer in that place writing back to Christians in Italy sending greetings from people who had come from Italy to wherever it is that he is writing from. Right? You get it? We don't know. We don't know. But what is really interesting about this letter, as you read through it, um, is like other, the other New Testament letters, it is very, very personal. It's very, very personal. Um, Whoever it was who wrote this letter knew the people to whom he was writing um, and cared about the people to whom he was writing. So, um, you know, I mean, these are all things that that have, uh, the, the fact we don't know who wrote it, don't know exactly to whom it was sent, don't know where it was written from. I mean, all this other stuff that's so apparent in other New Testament letters we just really, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which we're kind of in the dark. But here's what we do know. And, and again, the author of this little volume makes this it's a great point. Here's what we know. Behind the human author, there's another author, right? There's a divine author. And the divine author, who is ultimately the source of what is here in this letter to the Hebrews... Uh, has appointed this letter not only for the benefit of those folks who received it in the first century, but for your benefit and mine. It's for us. It's a letter for us. So we, we can read it with, uh, with great benefit, even though it's, uh, it's, it's a different sort of a letter, uh, and should read it with, with real benefit. Um, now, here's, here's another thing, another little comment uh, regarding... This letter. It is different from other New Testament letters. And it's different, it seems to me, in this, in this respect. Um, if you think about Paul's letters, for example, uh, and, and maybe especially a letter like Romans or the letter to the Ephesians, there's a you know there's a there's a kind of an evident structure to those letters. Right? We're, we're, uh, we're going to get back to Romans, by the way. Some, someday. We'll get back to Romans. And the, you know, the structure of Romans is, is pretty much that beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1 and through chapter 11, Paul is, is unpacking for the benefit of a particular group of people, he's unpacking his understanding of the gospel. Okay, this is the gospel. It begins with sin, He moves on to the sufficiency of Christ, that very compact little passage in Romans 3, verses 21 and following. He then goes on to talk about faith, which we understand to be the instrument, the means by which we appropriate the benefits of the work of Christ. Christ, in his work, overcomes sin. We appropriate the benefits of the work of Christ through faith. And then in chapters 5 and 6 and 7, he goes on to work out some of the implications, Uh, not all, but many of the implications of what it means to appropriate the benefits of the work of Christ uh, personally and individually. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, because he's writing to a, a mixed congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, he takes on this question of of the particular place of the Jewish nation in God's overall scheme, his overall redemptive scheme, uh, and deals with what is a, a, a pressing concern for those whom he's interacted with across the whole of his ministry. Right? He would go to synagogues, he would preach in synagogues, he'd interact with Jews, he'd have to give them answers to the questions about Gentiles who were being brought in. He's doing that sort of thing in chapters 9, 10, and 11. So 118 through 11 is Paul sort of unpacking the gospel. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, comes the big therefore, right? Therefore, right? In view of God's mercies, I urge you, brothers, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Don't be conformed anymore to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Those two verses are kind of the big segue into practical application of everything that he's been talking about in the first 11 chapters. So it's, it's sort of theology, and then it's application. And you see a similar thing uh, in Ephesians. Paul's letters tend to sort of work that way. Here's the doctrine, here's the theology, with admonitions and encouragements and reminders and a whole bunch of stuff in there, but then the practical application of it tends to come in the later part of the letters. Well, you don't have that in Hebrews. You don't have, like, 1 through 6 is theology, and... Seven through thirteen is application. Here's what what you really do see as you read the commentaries, and you'll see it in this. You'll see it if you look at the ESV notes. The ESV Study Bible is a great study Bible, by the way. Have copies of it if you want to pick one up. If you don't, you can get it. You can put it on your iPad for I think thirteen ninety nine or something. I mean, it's a great resource, and other commentaries as well. They will say that the that the structure of Hebrews is actually more like a sermon. It feels sermonic. Okay? Now, what do you do I see one or two of you who have done this, maybe three. What do you do when you preach a sermon? Well, the the way a sermon is supposed to work is that you begin with a text. And beginning with a text, there is then an exposition or the unpacking of that text. And then, after the unpacking of that text, there is the application of that text. Text, exposition, and application. Application. Hebrews has that kind of feel to it. it. It feels like a sermon. In fact, throughout the letter, um, and I'll, I'll just give you some verses that you can make, make notes of. Throughout the letter, the writer uses language that feels like you're listening to a sermon. 2 5, Hebrews 2 5. Hebrews 5.11, Hebrews 6.9, Hebrews 8.1, Hebrews 9.5. The writer uses the language of speaking and hearing, not writing and reading, speaking and hearing. And, and if you think about a structure for the letter, I've, I've put, you're not going to find this in here, This is, this is original to me. Okay, I've I've given you a a kind of a structure for reading the letter to the Hebrews. Okay, what's the text? The text is Hebrews one, verses one through three. Let me just read them for you. Got to get back here. and he upholds the universe by the word of power, by, his word, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's, that's Jesus, right? That's Jesus. So that, that sort of is the text, if you will, Hebrews 3, 1 through 3 and if you could if you could give the, the sermon a sermon title, the sermon title would be The Excellence of Jesus, or the superiority of Jesus, or the surpassing greatness of Jesus. And then, in good homiletical fashion, right, all preachers preach the way Jesus would want us to preach we've got an exposition that's made up of three points. It's a three-point sermon. Text, title, exposition. Point one. Chapter one, verse four through 218. Jesus, more excellent than the angels. Jesus, more excellent than the angels. Point two. Chapter three, verse one, through chapter four, verse 13. Jesus, more excellent than Moses and Joshua. Point three. Chapter four, verse 14, through chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus, more excellent than Aaron and Moses. And then, there's the application. Text, exposition, application. 10, 19 through 13, 25, Cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Now, let me, let me encourage you, since we're going to be living in this, in this letter for the next three months. Yeah, three months. Let me encourage you to read it and reread it and keep reading it and rereading it and, and sort of read it with this, kind of a, with this sort of thought in mind that it has a kind of a sermonic quality to it, a sort of a sermonic structure to it. And keep in mind these these three main headings, Jesus more excellent than the angels, Jesus more excellent than Moses and Joshua, Jesus more excellent than Aaron, Um, and uh, that says Moses, it should be Melchizedek, sorry. Aaron and Melchizedek, sorry Mel. Mel. There we go, Jesus more excellent than Aaron and Melchizedek, with the last part of the of the um, of the letter, focusing more on more specifically on, on admonition and encouragement and that sort of thing. Okay, read the letter with this kind of structure in view. Read it with that sort of that sort of idea uh, in your head. Um. Um, and and then keep in mind um, a couple of other things as you're reading it. I've already mentioned one of them. Um, well, actually, I've mentioned two of them. The person who wrote this letter knew these people, knew them, and cared about them. So this this letter is not um, it's not theoretical it 's not a kind of it 's not abstraction it 's not some guy sitting in a corner someplace, uh, just just sort of reflecting on the person of Christ. There are real people who are in view here as this letter is being uh, as be, is being written so it 's very, very personal and look for that as you read it uh, and then the second thing um, this business of speaking and, and hearing, the kind of language that's used. Um, the, the author is, is, is sort of, he, he's trying to, in a sense, be present with the people to whom he's writing. He has a relationship with them. Um, he knows them. He loves them. And he keeps using this language by which he's suggesting that he's really present with them. Okay? Um, so keep that in mind. And then, here's a third thing, Um, though there's a kind of this sort of general structure to the thing where you have a basic text, and then the exposition of the text, and you know what I mean by exposition, right? It's uh, it's the unpacking, exposing, it's the exposing. So here's the text, all these things that are said about Jesus, let's unpack it, let's, let's enlarge it, let's 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 get into the details of what is expressed here in chapter one, verses one through three. So that's the exposition and then the application. While that's a kind of a a general structure to the thing, you'll notice throughout this letter that there are all kinds of encouragements liberally sprinkled throughout. There are all kinds of admonitions liberally sprinkled throughout. Um, I've mentioned... um, Already, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, um, I think I mentioned 4, 14 through 16, 5, 7 through 9, but there are these exhortations that are throughout as well. For example, two, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's an admonition, isn't it? In the midst of this letter. Um, Verses 17 through 18 of chapter 2. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful Faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's a, you know, what is that? Well, it's a, it's a practical, personal thing. This is who Jesus was, and now Jesus is here for you to help and encourage you. It's an encouragement. It's an admonition. 3, verses 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. An admonition, right? An encouragement. Um, 5.11, I'm, I'm... I'm reading these passages for you because I'm just proving my point, okay? Showing you what's going on. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Admonition, encouragement. Um, 10, 19 through 25 uh, is is another one. Um, and that's that's sort of the, the kind of the big one, if you will, that leads us into this last section where we're being encouraged, and we see it especially in chapter eleven. We're being encouraged to follow in the path, to follow in the wake of this long list of people who have sought to to walk this Christian life by faith. Um, so, liberally sprinkled throughout this are these admonitions. Um, and these encouragements. And and really, folks, that's, that's what preaching does, right? Preaching isn't a lecture. Preaching is personal. Preaching is something that happens when the preacher knows the people and knows their needs and their concerns. Preaching follows this sort of a pattern with a text and exposition and application. But real preaching is interactive, And this preacher interrupts his exposition at points along the way and says, in effect, are you with me? And are you getting how this applies to you right now, the comfort that there is, the encouragement that there is, or these are the admonitions and the exhortations that begin to come out of this? You understand what I'm saying? That's what Hebrews is like. It feels very much like a sermon. It's taken me a long time to kind of figure this out, but I've kind of finally figured it out, and that's why I thought it'd be good to go through it. Okay. So now, here's a, here's a question. Um, what's the issue here? When preachers preach, they're not delivering lectures. They're addressing particular issues and particular concerns. They're not just reading a passage, talking about the passage, giving a couple of illustrations, reciting a poem, praying and leaving. Right? Real preaching is going to be engaged with the people where they are, addressing particular concerns. What's the particular concern in this letter? Well, the particular concern in this letter, the major concern of the preacher in this particular case is the danger of falling away. The danger of falling away. The danger of apostasy. Withdrawing from Christ. Retreating from Christ. And why is it that that's a particular danger? Well, it's because of the threat of opposition, the threat of persecution. And I'll encourage you to look for that as well as you read through this letter. The danger of falling away, the danger of apostatizing or withdrawing from Christ or rejecting the faith because of the threat of opposition, persecution. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34. This is in this sort of last section, right? Application, exhortation, admonition. (coughs) But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated or you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted get this you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property i had a little exchange with one of our members after the sermon this morning you know after the sermon on conflict and stuff and somebody you know i mean i read the newspapers i listen to the news This person's concerned that we're headed in the wrong direction as a culture, right? I'm concerned too. What if my property is plundered? What if my money's taken away? Who's going to care for me? Who's going to care for my family? Plundering of your... Joyfully receiving, accepting the plundering of your property. That's what the writer is saying characterize the lives of these people at some point in the past. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So you see what this, this little passage sort of summarizes what the concern is and why it is the writer was provoked to write this letter? These folks had a track record. These things characterized that track record. But it seems that the persecution and the opposition has either intensified or just continued. And now they're kind of saying, is Jesus really worth all of this? Is Jesus worth it? And so his, his aim is to show them that Jesus is worth it. It's to show them. And, and think about this, if, they are, if they're Jews, and I think this is what was happening, largely Jewish, the temptation is to revert, is to go back to the inferior, It's to go back to Judaism. What was safe, what was secure, One of the reasons I happen to think, you know, you you can't be absolutely sure about this, but one of the reasons I happen to think that this letter is being written by someone in Rome, actually back to converts in Jerusalem and Judea, is because in those first centuries after the resurrection of Christ, who suffered. Jewish converts. James was beheaded. Paul ran around dragging people out of their homes and and imprisoning them, right? It was a tough place to be if you were going to be a convert to Christianity. And the danger seems to be, generally speaking, opposition and persecution, but even more specifically, reverting, returning to the inferior because it's safe. And secure. And he's writing this letter to admonish and encourage them regarding the excellence of Jesus, encouraging them to continue to cling to Jesus using passages like this Yet a little while, and the coming one will come, will not delay. He will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And then, in, in chapter 11, what is to follow, offering this long, long list of people who persevered in the midst of circumstances very much like the circumstances that these folks probably found themselves in, beginning with Abel, who was killed by his brother because of his faith. And then you get to the end of chapter 11, verses 32 and following. refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. I wish Mary Ford were here because she'd say, Amen right now. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And here's one of the most horrible chapter and verse divisions in all of Scripture. Separating chapter 11 from chapter 12 which begins by holding before us the one who is the perfect model of faith and perseverance, Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the better thing, right? The greater thing, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's the circumstance? The circumstance is opposition, persecution. What's the danger? The danger is falling away. The danger is retreating from Jesus, apostatizing turning away from Jesus in the midst of it. Why is this letter being written? To encourage these people that they not give up on the thing that is more excellent, which is Jesus, and that they continue to cling to Jesus. So, point, Hebrews is not an abstract theological thing. It's written for people with real needs, written to them in a real circumstance, real place, real time, encouraging these folks to persevere. I, I was just struck by this, actually, this afternoon, um, thinking about this, that the revelation, I'm convinced, is written for the very same reason. The revelation is written for the very same reason. In highly symbolic, very, very cryptic language, cryptic to us, but highly symbolic All of it connected to Old Testament images. You who have been around here for a while have heard me say this a million times. Um, but, But written to encourage believers in the midst of opposition and persecution. Revelation is not written by somebody speculating about what's going to happen in the last 10 years or 20 years or 100 years at the end of history. It's written by John... Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance which are in Jesus Christ. And if you read through the Revelation, this is not a homework assignment, just if you read through it, you will see repeated references to endurance and perseverance, admonitions, to persevere. So Hebrews is very much like the revelation in that sense. It's written to people in the midst of opposition, encouraging them to persevere. So that's, that's the introduction. What is it? It's a sermon. It's a sermon with a great and glorious text, exalting the excellence of Jesus, the exposition of, and then the application, which is a lengthy encouragement to continue to, to cling to Jesus. So just read it with, with that kind of stuff um, in your heads. And I, I hope that it, it will um, be of benefit to you. Okay, we've got a few minutes uh, before we have to quit. Um, let me just see if you have any comments or want to ask any questions. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. You know, security one way and then um we read if we try to the whole Great. Yes. Great, great, great question. Now, uh, the question is um <coughs> these Admonitions, exhortations, um, frequently sound like warnings. They are. How do we understand them? And how do they touch on this matter of, of eternal security? Because you read a passage, for example, like Hebrews 6, and it sounds like a person can lose his or her salvation. Here's my suggestion. This is how I would suggest that we think about that um number one the, the whether it's whether it's Romans or first Peter or Hebrews or jude um, these letters are all pastoral okay they're all pastoral but concerning this this matter of uh, of one's eternal security um the 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 for pastoral reasons, the Bible thinks about that from two different perspectives. If I can, I don't want to be too abstract or obscure here. But it thinks about a person who has professed faith in Christ from two perspectives. You read a passage like Romans 8, for example. Romans eight thirty-eight and 39. For I am convinced that there is nothing in all of the creation, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, that will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That perspective is the perspective, this is a big word, okay, but that perspective is a soteriological perspective, meaning our doctrine and understanding of salvation, okay? The soter is the savior. So something soteriological has to do with the whole business of saving. And and what Paul is doing in Romans, in, in one sense, is unpacking for us a soteriology. He's telling us what the problem is, which is sin, He's telling us what God has done about the problem of sin that we might be saved. And then he's telling us how what he has done in Christ gets worked out in the life of one who is saved. And he concludes with this, you know, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 8 with this incredible string of comments. If God is for us, who can be against us? How will he... Not who has given us his own Son, also in him freely give us all things. You see, he's, he's unpacking this soteriological reality, for the person who is in Christ, which is what chapters six and seven really are about. That's all talking about what it's like for the person who is in Christ, truly united to Christ. There is no severing, no separating that one from Christ ever again. You may have that assurance and confidence. Okay? That's a soteriological perspective. There's also this, what what you could call this practical pastoral perspective. Here is this pastor who knows these people, who presumably... I th- I th- I don't think this is a stretch to say that he is the one perhaps with others but he is the one who has preached the gospel or at least been connected to these people in their nurture in the gospel these people who have professed faith in Christ he's looking at them from this practical pastoral perspective and he sees them in their behavior in their attitudes in the conduct of their lives, making moves that suggest they're turning away. So what is the loving, pastoral, practical thing to do for these folks? Well, it's it's not to say to them, hey, you walked the aisle, you prayed a prayer to receive Christ, you accepted Jesus in Sunday school when you were four years old, don't worry about it you're okay. That's not the loving thing to do. The loving thing is to say, hey, folks, if you continue on this path, if you continue to move in this direction, we're not talking about eternal security here. We're talking about what is observable, what can be seen, and the things that can be observed and seen suggest that you're moving away from Christ. And if that happens, do you realize the danger that you're exposing yourself to? That you're exposing yourself to the dangers of judgment, the threats of real judgment, no matter what you said 12 or 20 or 42 years ago. Right? So that's how I would understand the difference. A passage like Romans 8, very pastoral, wanting very much to encourage people who are wrestling to understand the gospel, coming to terms with the gospel. Paul wants us to understand that when we are in Christ, we are secure in Christ forever. But Paul's admonition to people who seem to be moving away from Christ, as well as the admonitions of the writer to the Hebrews, is a practical pastoral thing. Right. That's why, you know, I'm going off on this, because it's 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 a challenging distinction to make, but it's an important one. Sometimes when we do member interviews in this church... Uh, some, some, someone will say, and, and, and it has been said, you know, what we're concerned about is what you think right now. What you believe right now. Not necessarily what happened to you 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago, but right now, at the core of your being, do you know and understand that you are a sinner, saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Right? And, and that, I think, is the perspective of this writer of the letter to the Hebrews. Okay? If that, it, it's that kind of distinction that I think we need to make. Both are intensely practical and pastoral. It's like, you know, it's like there's one medicine, one gospel, that gets applied to different kinds of needs. And, and if i could if i could put it this way the tender hearted who fear they aren't christians need to know more than anything else that they are secure in the love of christ the smug and self righteous who think they are christians may need to know more than anything else that their smugness and self-righteousness may be an indication of exactly the opposite and need to be warned. You see, you see what I mean? So you, get, you can get both things going on. So that, that, that would that'd be my answer. And obviously as we get into Hebrews and walk through this thing, we'll have lots more opportunity to unpack that. Well, that was one question. It's five after seven. Um, I, I promise, I promise, I promise I'll try to leave time as we go through this stuff for questions. Maybe next week at the beginning you can think through, think over, contemplate, meditate on some of the stuff I've said. We can take the first few minutes next Sunday evening and you can toss a question, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Uh, Thank you for uh, your word living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate way down into the deepest places of our souls. Um, That's what this letter tells us. It's what you tell us through this letter. And so I, I do pray that your word Uh, would settle into those deep places in our souls and and do its work. Um, Thank you that though there are those times when you confront us and convict us, you unsettle us, uh, you are always there to speak a word of um, unending, unrelenting mercy and grace and kindness as we turn to you Uh, for what you possess, uh, and that is the refreshing, renewing, cleansing, forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, So thank you for that, and be with us as we head into this week. In Jesus' name, amen.